Hello and welcome to CoinCast. I'm Francine Dash, hosting today. I want to thank all of you for tuning in and listening to us. This podcast, like all of them, is brought to you in part by LEI Productions. Today we have with us Genevieve Meyer, who's been a past guest. Uh, Genevieve was kind enough to share her story, uh, her background story with us. And today we're going to learn a little bit more about the work that she's doing, the important work that she's doing, and learn more about her foundation. So Genevieve, thank you again. Thank you for having me. Good deal, good deal. Um, let's jump right into the Resiliency Foundation, right? Yes. Um, you started this foundation, and, and you know, I know we talked a lot about your, your background and the work that you did that led up to it, but tell us a little bit more about Resiliency Foundation, what it's about, and the people you serve. Sure. So Resiliency Foundation was founded on the belief that no matter what curveballs life throws your way, even if it's very significant trauma, um, you can overcome them and you can be resilient and you can still go on to have a meaningful life. And so just the idea of that and getting that message out to people and also identifying who to best serve. Mm -hmm. And um, the way that that came through initially was with looking at child marriage um, I was a victim of child marriage. That was something that I overcame. Um, there's a lot of things, secondary things to that, such as, you know, getting an education, um, figuring out healthy relationships, um, my own parenting with my own children, um, all those different pieces there, but ultimately really spawned from, from that major life experience. Um, I thought that I was the only person that that had happened to. I thought it was some weird fluke thing. Um, but when I came out with my story, I learned that there were others. And the more my story spread out there, the more people reached out to me. And I found out that not only are there others, but um, there were a couple organizations across the country that were looking to um, change the laws because unfortunately, not much had been done um, to change the laws across the country. And not only was it not only had it happened to more people than just me, but it was still happening um, now, currently, in today's time. That's the strange thing about abuse, is that a lot of times victims get it into their minds that they're the only ones, and it kind of feeds that whole guilt factor that a lot of victims will feel, even though they're children. How does your foundation really dig into that space with people in, in, that, in that part of the process of helping them kind of Sure. No. So we do, we do three things. We do education and that takes the, the form of educating providers, doctors, and other people that might come in contact with people that are trying to overcome a child marriage or a forced marriage, uh, learning to identify them and then support them in the way that they need. And one of the interesting components to that is that, you know, this is like a family based issue. You know, you have minor children um, that are being shoved into marriages that aren't necessarily, uh, most often aren't in their best interest by people that are supposed to protect and nurture them. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you can, you can grow out of that. You can grow up, you can leave that marriage, but that thing that happened in that family, that never goes away. Right. So how do you relate to your family members when something like that has happened? And that's not just true with child marriage. I mean, that happens with incest and rape in families and, you know, physical abuse, emotional abuse, psychological abuse. You know, we have, we have a lot of issues within our families. Um, some are, you know, just really complicated and some are just really awful and really horrible. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. your family is part of your identity. 
So just, just able to reconcile that and then moving yeah. forward, you have a family of your own and you have a relationship your own, not just your intimate relationships, but your friendships, you know, your work relationships, um, mm -hmm. that experience is going to shape how you deal with those people around you. And identity is a big thing, particularly when you talk about the family dynamic, uh, how in your own life, how have you related that experience that you had or continue, probably continue to have with your own family? How do you share that with people you're trying to educate to help them understand that they're not just dealing with the person in front of them, but they're dealing with that person's family history. Well, and it's so personal and it is based on a person's identity and you know, everybody's different. We all have levels of tolerance and things that we're willing to accept. Um, you know, some of us are better at boundaries than others. And then across the board, we continue to grow and we continue to change and that continues to change and evolve. Uh, but when you have, survivors come into your organization, you have to meet them where they are at that time. And they might not necessarily be angry at their family and just hurt. You know, they don't want somebody to go to jail. They don't want justice. They just want help from that situation. And just, so just meeting them where they are and then helping them move forward at their own pace. And that can be hard for people who probably have never been in contact with someone who's gone through this learning those things, you know, because a lot of victims aren't angry in the way that people might expect them to be because they've been in the survivor mode for so long. And plus, mm -hmm. people tend to love their families, right? They mm -hmm. tend to want to love their families. When you're talking directly to people who are surviving this, you know, it's, it's not always an even road up from there. There's bumps along the way. Mm -hmm. uh, how, do, how do you keep people encouraged to stick with the healing and to... Um, believe in themselves enough to move beyond not just the abusive situations, but uh, the mentality that could be a cycle that can lead forward. Well, I think validation is probably the most important there of uh, your feeling, what you're feeling. Another thing you see in families is um, there's different perspectives, right? There's, there's different ways that people respond to things. You know, you can have five family members watch a movie and, you know, some of them are going to get kind of the general plot right, but everybody's going to take away something different than that. So you can have different truths within one family. You know, you have, you can also have gaslighting of like that never happened. And, you know, Uncle Ted never did that to you or that sort of thing. But somewhere in the middle there, you're going to have different versions of the truth based on lived experience and different perceptions. So like my siblings, we all see things very different. There's some commonalities in there. You know, there's the things like, you remember we had that cat that was so big and it would walk across the roof and you could hear it. Like we all got that. We all agree on that. But you know, my brother might kind of feel like that cat was mostly black. Whereas my sister might feel like that cat was mostly gray because that's how you kind of remember it. And when you have painful, difficult things that happen in families, those smaller details like that, even though they don't matter, they can kind of come up and blow up. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. The, the survivor of what happened, you know, a victim, or maybe you might have several members of the family that were victims of the kind of the same thing, but it was like on different levels and, you know, things can get yeah. kind of murky. There. So just, you know, understanding that there can be different truths surrounding mm -hmm. it. 
um, validating what that person feels. Um, likewise, you know, some people can just kind of shake things off a little easier than others. And some people mm-hmm. talk about it more or you know, some people they're like, I'm never going to get an apology for that. And that's fine. Cause I've moved on with my life, but some people really are holding out for that. Right. Right. Uh, how do you, there was a question that I wanted to ask about cultures and different cultures have a different expectation on how to deal with family business, if you will, family secrets and that sort of thing. Um, in some cultures, there are just certain things you just never talk about. Their family just never talks about anything sexual. In some cultures, you just never talk about anything bad or whatever. How, how do you, when you're training or as you're engaging people, how do you overcome uh, family cultures, family traditions when it comes to to sharing and, and healing? Um, well, again, it comes down to individuality. Um, I know that's something that we see quite a bit when we're working with other service providers of, um, because this has been this experience with this particular culture, they assume that it's the same way in every family. Mm-hmm. And that's not necessarily the case. Mm-hmm. Um, so to have somebody come to you and be like, this is happening to me in my family and I don't know how to get help. Mm-hmm. Um, to be like, well, that's just how your culture is. That's very dismissive and you're not going to be able to help that person. So again, um, you have to rely on, you know, let, let the victim tell their story and listen to them and meet them where they're at. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is true. And various cultures are different um, and they bring with them different things. And I am all for, you know, maintaining your culture and embracing that as long as it's not generally harming other people. So when we have families that immigrate to the United States, um, we need to make sure that everybody is um, provided the safety and the opportunities, no matter how old they are or what gender they are in their family. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so just because this is the way that it was done in that country, um, it does not transfer automatically over here in the case of like forced marriage or child marriage or mm-hmm. things like that. And that leads right into where I wanted to go with the child marriage. And, and you know, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about some of the legislation that you've been trying to promote and support because the cultural aspect um, also determines how people see child marriage. There are places in the world where it's not taboo um, and it's not uh, a bad, it's not been a bad thing for them. But you're right, in this country, we, uh, well, you know, we have the ideas, but we don't always have the laws to support the ideas of, of protecting children and families. Well, and there's so, a long way between a law and enforcement too. So that leads to the legislation. Tell us a bit about the legislation that you've been supporting uh, regarding uh, the work that you do with your foundation. Sure. So in the state of Indiana, this last legislative session that wrapped up in March, uh, we were able to get a bill passed to raise the minimum age of marriage from 15 to 16. Um, the pregnancy exception has been removed. And there's some additional safeguards in there. Um, you know, ideally we would have liked to have been like, nobody can get married under 18. And you know, that would be, that would be it. Um, but we have some things in there. So first of all, one of the things that happens is if you're applied for a marriage license and you're under 18, a judge is going to review that. So before, if you were 16, 17, your parents were just able to kind of fill out a permission slip for you. And nobody asked any questions beyond that. Mm-hmm. So nobody looked at, okay, how old is the other spouse? Is there a criminal record conviction? Uh, You know, is 
if nobody, you know, asks the, the, the spouses, is this really what you want? You know, a lot of times if they, if it is, it's like in the heat of the moment in the middle of the courtroom and they've got perpetrators on one side and the proposed spouse on the other side and they're elbowing, oh, you know, yeah. so what happens now is you have to be eligible to be emancipated. Uh, so we have somebody that's really, a judge is really looking under, under the hood. Um, a guardian latum is, is appointed to make sure that this is actually in the best interest of the child resources are given, you know, somebody asks the child, you know, is this really what you want? Have you thought about this? And so they are emancipated and then there is a waiting period uh, before they actually get that marriage license. Are there any requirements during that waiting period as to who they can and cannot live with? Uh, no, but they do have the guardian litem that's looking at that. So if they are in a situation like that, they would be able to help them. Okay. Okay. So basically it's a neutral party that is okay. just, there to serve the best interests of the child. It's not auntie. It's not a cousin. It's you know. It's somebody that's that's appointed and trained by the state. Right. Right. Why? Why did it take so long for Indiana to to get on board with this, or to even realize that this is something that needed to be done? Um, I think they genuinely didn't know. So um, you know, this was the first session that it was brought up, and that mm. we talked about it. So we went and we talked with um, pretty much everybody that we talked to was completely blown away that this was something that still happened. Um, they very graciously listened to my testimony as well as the testimony of other child marriage survivors in the state. Um, and Representative Engelman um, was the one that really picked it up and ran with it and championed our bill. And then we had some kind of weird, weird things going on. And, and, but everybody really was supportive. We didn't come across any legislators that were like, I don't think this is really important. Um, you know, this isn't the most pressing thing we have. It was, it was really, really unanimous. I mean, the Republicans came together, the Democrats came together. It was very popular and there wasn't any controversy at all. It was just like, wait a minute. Thank you for bringing this to our attention. We're going to address it now. Uh, there's talks strengthening it more next legislative session. So, um, you know, and even when there was a couple um, hiccups that came up along the way, I mean, and, and that's why it got through because there were so many people that were just like, we really need to get this done. And we, and they, and did. That's, they all came and together and they did it. Exactly. That's what you want to see. You want to see people come together behind a good bill. Mm -hmm. So tell us about, you said they wanted to come together and possibly strengthen it. What would be some next steps that you would like to see that would be a part of this bill that you think would be, um, one of the best ways to protect uh, children from being becoming a victim of, of this type of thing? Uh, I think the best case scenario, if you get everything on your Christmas wish list, is just kind of that hard 18 of nobody under 18 can get married, no exceptions. Um, you know, and, and that's something that a lot of people say when they're like, you can't get married under 18 in the U.S., you have to be 18. And right. in most states, technically, yes. If you're just going to go walk in on your own. Now, there are some states where 16, 17-year-olds can consent for themselves. Um, but, you know, you have that 18, but then you have this exception. And then it's this exception. But if this happens, and then by the time you whittle all that down, you have some states that actually don't even have a marriage age floor in which these sorts of things can happen. So, you know, we passed some laws. We've been doing this for a little while. We now have three states that are the, the 18 hard line. Um, it is possible for it to be a federal resolution. So it's just the same in every state. 
Right. It's definitely an uphill battle, but it's not impossible and it is not completely out of the conversation. Mm-hmm. And, um, but one of the issues we have in Indiana is our other laws, you know, no law is dependent just on itself. Right. So mm-hmm. that is why, um, cause originally we really requested for the minimum age to be 17 mm-hmm. and ultimately we had to settle at 16 because the age of consent is 16 in Indiana. Oh, oh I see. I see. Yes. So have to be addressed before you can truly get all of the things that you want on your wish list. Do you foresee that being a problem moving forward in the state of Indiana? Um, I don't know that it'll be a problem. Uh, definitely, you know, the um, the interest um, from our current legislators and the conversations that we've had, those are very encouraging. Um, I am really excited at all the conversation we're talking about further protecting minors. Yes. Um, I think 16 and 17 year olds are still vulnerable. I think that might be one of the most vulnerable ages. Absolutely. You know, as you're transitioning from childhood to adulthood and trying to figure out who you are and independent from your parents and what kind of life that you're going to have. And, you know, I mean, teenagers do risky things. <laughs> they, they, they do. Yes, they do. And, um, you know, it's just a phenomenal opportunity for, um, you know, very, very clever predators to come and swoop on and take advantage of that. Another issue we have in Indiana as well is we don't have a statutory rape law. That's, uh, and I don't quite understand why we don't. Did you get any indication as to why? Because I'm sure that it must have come up in your research on your radar. You know, again, that's one of those that a lot of people, I think, don't realize that we don't have. You know, and at the end of the day, we, we as people, we need to feel like, you know, our government and our leaders have enacted laws and put things in place to protect us. You know, that's how we sleep at night. That's how we hope for the future. You know, that's how we can save raising, raising our families in the world. And most of the time that works out well. But when something happens and then you learn that those laws are not there, it is so devastating. And, you know, I mean, there there's a lot of things to do. I mean, there's like what? over a thousand thousands of bills that come through the legislative session every year there's only so much time right (laughs) Right. so many resources so it's a matter of you know picking out what needs to be done now and um you know educating legislators having those conversations raising awareness and that's how you get those issues moved up a little closer to the top let's talk about the federal side because we go federal that will alleviate some of the issues that you know having to go state to state to state uh, we have an election coming up this year and another couple of years. So there's some time to create a landscape that would be favorable for this legislation to go through. Of course, federal would be more complicated. What your foundation and maybe you personally, what, what do you need to see uh, take place after the elections? What type of uh, 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 people need to be in place that you think would be able to support this legislation moving forward on the federal side? Um, Sure. So one of the things that's um, one of the avenues that we've been able to use to really raise awareness of child marriage is through human trafficking, Mm -hmm. which is also a very new concept. Um, You know, it's only been in the last decade that people have really had conversations about that, understanding that it really can happen to your child, your next door neighbor, your Mm -hmm. grandchild. Um, We're still scrambling to put that together, legislation to pass laws, legislation to, um, you know, free up funds for research, for uh, victim services, you know, all those, all those things there. So child marriage sometimes is able to um, kind of use that vehicle a bit. 
Uh, but ultimately on the federal stage, it is not a part of the conversation. Um, you know, human trafficking hardly ever comes up in debates or an issue. Um, right now, this legislative session coming up will be interesting because these are um, unprecedented times. You know, everybody has a little more time to think, to evaluate their lives, to evaluate what's important to them. Um, I know I've even seen, you know, several conversations on social media and whatnot, because you can't really get out and talk with people right now. Um, but, you know, they act like child abuse and sexual assault and domestic violence have disappeared because all we're hearing about is the pandemic, because that is the most pressing thing right now. Right. Um, eventually, that's that's going to shift again. You know, um, hopefully there, there will be some, some better solutions here. But right now, people are not able to go to work. People don't know if they're going to have any income next month. You know, you have people that a month ago were able to go to the grocery store and pick out groceries. And right now they can't do that. You know, right. there's something to whatever is put in a box for them. Mm -hmm. uh, children don't know if they're going to go to school next fall. So, um, you know, like all the other organizations, we know that it's definitely still going out there. Um, the risks have increased, you know, people being cooped up at home together, um, mm -hmm. even the most loving and supportive families, you're going to get on your ner people's nerves, right? <laughs> you know, games of monopolies are going to get thrown across the room. Monopoly, you know, I just fed you yesterday. I don't want to cook again today. I mean, you know, I mean, if you can imagine, you know, that stress just magnified, people are going to start looking at maybe solutions such as marrying their child to someone else. Um, or, you know, losing it and, you know, hitting their child when they normally wouldn't. I mean, all of those things, the higher level of stress and uncertainty a family has, the higher level of these negative things happening within that family unit. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so right now the pieces are still kind of falling, you know, for everybody across the board. And so, um, you know, we have to continue to evaluate. We have to see where piece, pieces land and figure out how to put those pieces together. So how do you make human trafficking a part of the federal level discussion? Uh, has your foundation thought about how to not necessarily insert yourself, but to get into the ears of uh, senators and congresspersons to, to help them to understand how pervasive this is across the nation? There was a report done probably, I think, 2016 about this issue. Um, when people were really starting to talk about it, but it, it still, there still seems to be a disconnect as far as this being an American problem. This is seen as a problem that happens elsewhere, and some unfortunate Americans get caught up in it. We don't really realize right. that there's organic, homegrown, human trafficking problem. I was just watching last night the Centoya Brown story. I didn't realize her mother, her biological mother, was trafficked by her mother mm -hmm. and that created this cycle you know and in their families are really quite sad um but that's what i'm talking about when i'm talking about human trafficking just to give you some context how do you uh how does your organization uh, think or plan to help uh federal lawmakers to understand that level of human trafficking Sure. So um, one of the biggest things we're looking at right now is, um, you know, our, our, our mission statement for the Resiliency Foundation is to help um, victims become survivors one relationship at a time. Mm -hmm. um, and so 
we have brought in other survivors from across the country and some are around the world um, just to be part of the community. Mm-hmm. And that's what has worked the best over the past year. You know, my foundation is really new. So there's, you know, there's that, that era of learning of like, okay, this is what we think we're going to do. And then this is what really happens. Right. Um, so I thought in the beginning, I, I knew that it was difficult to find services. Um, the more significant your trauma is, the more difficult it is. You know, there are a lot of great professional people out there that would love to, um, you know, work more in this arena that don't necessarily have uh, the education, the understanding, or the ability to continue. You know, some will kind of work in that area for a while, and then they'll be like, I'm taking this one with my family and my kids. I'm going to take a break and, you know, do marriage counseling or something for a while. So it's not as easy to just, you know, open up the phone book and find somebody to help you when you reach the place where you're ready for some help. And so I thought that I would try and shorten that gap and, you know, create like a resiliency network, which we have. Um, And we've, uh, you know, met with all those organizations and we've talked about everything from the intake process to next steps to follow up. Almost none of the clients for the Resiliency Foundation have chosen to get therapy. Wow. To meet with a therapist. Um, most of the needs are very short term, just very much like, you know what, I got a new job, but I can't put gas in my car to get to the new job until well, I get let's, you know, let's, let's go back to the therapy part. Why do you, were you surprised that it was, it was, um, yeah, I thought, you know, they, they wanted those services, but you know, just weren't able to connect. I mean, a therapist, the relationship you have with your therapist is more important than the type of therapy you're receiving. If you are not able to get a good relationship with that therapist, you're just not going to be able to make the progress. That you do. That's true. That's true. Um, and so sometimes, you know, you have to see a couple therapists before you see the right one. You know, I mean, you don't get on a dating app and, you know, go out with the first person and end up marrying them. <laughs> it's like a trial and error process. And sometimes it can go really bad, uh, you know, and that just happens. But what, what we saw is less than less of a, you know, go to therapy and that traditional healing route there and more of just wanting to be part of the community. Mm-hmm. I got have people that have been there right. and so that's what we have we have um we have about 50 people I think across the country that are involved um, either you know really minimally or on a regular basis and what, what they have is somebody to call probably mm-hmm. uh, people that know like they haven't even necessarily told their whole story or anything but they just know because you know that you've been through it as well you know, there's, there, there's no judgment. There's no, you know, you're not where you should be now. I mean, if, if anything, you know, a few people are like, gosh, you know, I never went back to school and, you know, I just don't know if I'm going to now. Does that make me less of a person? And it's like, no, where you are is where you need to be right now. And if you want to make further steps to do something different, we're here for you. Or if you need to chill right now and still collect yourself, we're here for you too. You know, whatever you need, we're here for you. So, you know, especially with sexual abuse, there, there is that issue of silence. There's the don't tell anybody because you're going to shame yourself. Or, you know, if you tell, nobody believes you. Right. you know, that, that secrecy and that silence is a huge element of it. So for other people to find their voices in a safe place where they can just be themselves and be completely understood, 
Wow. So that is that is the big thing there. And to have everybody be in different states across the country is helpful for movement. Mm-hmm. So what we have is conversation about, well, what does that look like to use your voice? You know, what kind of platforms are available? What kind of support is available? So I can't name a university right now, uh, but right now we are in talks with a larger university in the country to help develop um, more develop those that do want to share their stories and do want to speak out and develop presentations and curriculum for conferences. And so at these conferences in these different states, you can invite key stakeholders and you can educate them and you can have, you know, a pretty captured audience right there and start planting those seeds and then, you know, circle back around and like, okay, well now, you know, so now we expect you to do better. What are we going to do about Mm -hmm. this? Right. Right. Got you. Got you. Um, one last thing um, that I, I wanted to ask you this the last time we met, and I, I really want to ask you this time because I just simply forgot. When you're going through the healing process, is it important to have to tell your story, so to speak? To You um, were able to articulate some very difficult things very well. And I think it's because you have gotten to a point in your life where you realize you're, first of all, you're not there anymore, but also you, it's your story and it's your truth and you don't live under that anymore. So you're, you're free from, you spoke with a certain amount of freedom, but you know, how do you get from, you know, where you are or how do you get from where you were to where you are? And do you have to tell your story or can people just come and be a part of this and, you know, just know, like they, like you said, that they're part of a tribe of people who get it, you know? Well, I always tell survivors when this comes up, first of all, you don't owe anybody your story. You do not have to share your story. And I know that's a little controversial. There are some um, individuals within the mental health profession that feel like you have to tell somebody your story. You have to and, the, and there is some therapeutic benefits to that of like purging your story. So maybe even if that's just writing it all out and then throwing that notebook into a fire, but that is a decision that should be made um, for yourself and maybe with the help of a mental health professional or another mentor. Mm-hmm. I don't think anybody has to tell their story. I don't think that it's going, I don't believe that it will hinder your ability to heal. Okay. Uh, and there's different levels of telling your story. I mean, there's telling your spouse. There's, you know, having a conversation maybe with the person that, you know, betrayed you or, you know, perpetrated on you and be like, you know, you did this to me and I want to say my piece and maybe that's all you ever need. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, to, oh gosh, I'm going to write my memoirs <laughs> and tell everybody everything or do a TED Talk. or I mean, there's so many different levels and your healing is your own and is individual to you. And so you do what you need to do. And likewise, there's different times and there's different seasons too. So, you know, we, we have that, we see that a lot with reporters and media, you know, they really want like those really fresh, like, yeah, she was rescued out of this really dangerous situation just last week. Tell us your story. (laughs) You know, but maybe five, 10 years from now, you know, should I be, he or she might be in a different place and decide that I do want to share my story because 
of whatever motivation. There can be so many different motivations. There can be like, I don't really want to be telling my story, but I know that if I don't, these legislators are not going to move because stories have power. They absolutely have power. And we heard that over and over again last legislative session is that the survivors came in and we told very powerful stories that could not be ignored and could not be swept under the rug. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's that element too. You know, some people want to raise awareness. You know, some people just do want to be like, you know what, I want the whole world to know what you did to me and I'm going to name names. You know, I mean, there's different motivations. Right, right, right. Exactly. Exactly. I appreciate the work that you do. I'm glad you're able to stay in the fight. You are a unique warrior. uh, And I'm really glad that you're able to empower other people who have had less than a stellar start in life to realize that where you start doesn't have to be where you end up. So much love and blessings to you and your family. Hopefully everybody's going well. (laughs) And uh, hopefully we can stay in touch and and check in with you from time to time to see... uh, to learn more about the good work that your foundation is doing. All right. All right. Thank you. Thank you. And with that, Gail, uh, we are out. This podcast has been brought to you in part by Eliac Productions, a studio for podcasters and musicians, and Pointcast News. To listen to any of our podcasts, please go to our website at pointcast.news or visit us at Apple Podcasts. Also, be sure to follow and like us on our Facebook page.